The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage Christian Fellowship. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Spring has finally sprung in Southern Oregon. I'm glad you decided to be here, not spend the day out on the golf course or something like that. It's great that you're here. My name is Paul. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and you're joining us uh, on, a, on a long study we have been in. It's going all the way back to September. We have been journeying through the, the New Testament book of, of Mark. It's a gospel. It tells us the story of Jesus. And as we've been journeying through this book, we've noticed in a very sort of basic structure of this book has been the first eight chapters talk about who is Jesus. The middle couple chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, talk about uh, who do you say that Jesus is. And then last week we got into chapter 11 here of Mark, and now the sort of the last third of the book is, is answering the question or kind of revealing to us how it is that Jesus became the king or became Messiah. And last week, Pastor Jeremy was with us, and he walked us through the triumphal entry text. And today we're going to journey into another challenging text today. It's a text that sees a side of Jesus we're not used to seeing. We tend to think of Jesus in warm, fuzzy terms. And yet today we see him doing two things that seem, in our basic estimation, out of sort of outside of character of what we would normally think of as Jesus. We are going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read verses uh, 12 through verse 25. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up there. We'll read through the text today. We'll make a couple quick observations. We'll pray. And then uh, we'll, we'll journey through the passage together this morning. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything, to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, and you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we open up this text and as we 
fix our minds on this passage. It's quite honestly a bit perplexing at times for us to read. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the things you want us to see today. God, as we teach this passage, I pray that you would open up our, our hearts and minds to, 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 to understand and to respond in obedience to the things it is that you are revealing to us through your word today, God. Would you reveal yourself to us, and in humility, may we put ourselves under the truths contained in this passage. Lord, we love you. We ask you to meet us in this place in powerful ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my daughter, Alexandria, came home last night from a track meet. She was up in Eugene. We went up on Thursday for the track meet, and it was raining all day and miserable and like 11 degrees and was horrible. And she had a long jump in that into like a mud pit. And then she had to go up yesterday for the second part of the track meet, and the weather changed, and she got sun all day, didn't bring sunblock. She walked into our house last night, and her face is beet red, and she's totally drained from being in the sun all day. And she was just wanting something to just to, to, uh to quench her thirst, to, to, to fill her with juice, and to, to bring vitality back to her weary body. And she looked on the counter of our kitchen, and my wife had been at Costco a day or two earlier, and she got this bag of grapefruits. And these grapefruits, I'm not kidding, are the size of small soccer balls. They are these massive grapefruits. I don't know where they got them. And Allie looks at that, and it has all the appearance of having everything that she needs to quench her thirst, to satisfy her soul. And so she grabs this giant grapefruit, and she can't wait to get into it. So she cuts it in half so she can plunge a spoon in and start eating it, but she cuts it in half and she's like, Dad, what in the world? Look at the picture of this grapefruit. <laughs> I'm like, that's all rind. That's all peel, no fruit. What in the world? The, the fruit lied to my daughter. It lied to her. Uh, it, it, all the appearance of juicy, fruity goodness, 75% peel, 25% fruit. Uh, it appeared to be fruitful, but in fact it was not the thing is, this grapefruit, it nailed it in presentation. It absolutely failed in substance. I think we often face the same temptation in our lives. We live in a world that puts utter value on presentation, especially in a world that's dominated by social media posts, sound bites, 140 characters or less. We, are, we have great motivation as people, both just as general citizens of our country, but also as followers of Jesus, we have great temptation and great motivation to be all about presentation and less about substance. It's easier than ever, and it's more tempting than ever to occupy ourselves with looking the part while not really paying attention to our heart level. We can sometimes be 75% peel, 25% fruit. As we look at our text today, we see Jesus standing at this fig tree filled with leaves, all, the, all leaf and no fruit, and he curses it. So how are we to understand this bizarre text, this, this strange passage? I was thinking this week about what, what, is, what is my job as a preacher, and very generically, my job is to read the text, it's to, to explain the text to the best of my ability, do the hard work so that I can explain it in a way in which God intends for us to understand it, and then apply it. And so my, my job today is, is to do that thing. We've read the text. My hope now in the next few minutes is to try to explain a little bit of what's happening here with the fig tree and the temple and the teaching afterwards. And then my hope at the end of the text today, or at the end of the sermon, is to apply into our lives what it is God might want to be do in and through us as a result of this passage today. And so as I look at the text, I see three movements. And here's the first movement that we see in our text in the first three verses. We see the curse of a fruitless tree. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write that down. We see the curse 
of a fruitless tree. But in order for us to fully understand what happens here in verses 12, uh, 13, and 14, I think we need to go back to verse 11 from last week's passage. It was this kind of innocuous little verse that didn't seem like it belonged anywhere. Verse 11, we read last week that Jesus entered Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And man, we spent a lot of time as a preaching team looking at verse 11 last week and even this week. Like, what? That's so unique. What was Jesus doing that night that he went into the temple and then quietly left? Was he sightseeing? I mean, it was Passover week. It was a spectacle in Jerusalem. A million plus travelers from around the known world descending on Jerusalem. So maybe he was just checking the sights out. I don't think that's what was going on, but maybe. Maybe it was kind of a... A nostalgic moment for Jesus. You know, he knew that this was his final week on planet Earth. He'd been foretelling of this to his disciples for quite some time. And so maybe for Jesus, this was a time to go be reflective on the temple, to take it in, a final moment to consider his life and his pending death. But I think as we consider the context, I think more likely what's happening in verse 11 here, based on our passage, is that Jesus is going up to the temple and he is seeing what is actually taking place on the temple, which was awful. And I think he's taking stock, and he's preparing for what's going to happen the next day. We were talking about this as a staff. You know, we read just in our text this morning that Jesus cleansed the temple. But the night before, he's walking around, and he's looking, and he's seeing the very place he's going to be standing in the next day with a whip in his hands, turning over tables. And so we said, maybe Jesus went back to Bethany that night and very patiently began to, to braid together the whip that he was going to use the next day to clear the temple. But the next day, as, his, as him and his disciples are, are journeying back to Jerusalem, we, we find ourselves in verse 12 here in this sort of perplexing passage that seems to kind of stand in opposition to the Jesus we think we know from the reading of the Gospels. Jesus sees this fig tree. It's full of leaves. He approaches it. Upon further inspection, there is no fruit. Jesus gets angry. And it's interesting that it took him to draw close and to inspect this tree to recognize that there is no fruit. The closeness revealed to Jesus that the presentation of the tree did not match the substance of the tree. Mark makes sure to tell us that there were no figs on the tree, for it wasn't even the season for figs. Then we read in verse 14 that Jesus speaks to the tree. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And we hear that the disciples heard Jesus say these words. And on its face, isn't this a bizarre passage? Isn't it odd? It seems, I wrote an email out to our, our congregation this week. Was Jesus just hangry? He wanted some food, and the food wasn't there, so he throws a temper tantrum and he zaps the tree. Uh, it seems that he's taking his anger out on a tree that's not even in season. And, and as I kind of studied this passage this week, I mean, this, this has perplexed people for centuries. People have tried to understand this passage. And, and they've been vexed and confused by it. If you look at the, kind of the totality of the ministry of Jesus, this is the only miracle in his whole life that's a miracle of destruction. And in Mark's gospel, this is the last miracle Jesus does before his death. And it seems so out of character. I, I did a lot of reading this week, uh, trying to understand what was happening here. I learned more about Middle Eastern horticulture than I care to mention as I was trying to understand how figs grow and what the season for figs is. And There's all these different people that have talked about this from all these different angles. Some scholars say, you know, in the springtime, these fig trees, before the leaves uh, uh, 
before a tree, a tree is fully leafed, there are these little buds, these little precursor to the fig, these little nodules that will sometimes grow on fig trees. And oftentimes in the springtime, sojourners would pluck these little, these little buds, these little nodules, and they would eat them for sustenance. So maybe that's what Jesus was looking for on this tree. I heard another scholar talk about how there's actually kind of a subspecies of, of fig trees in the Middle East that actually grow figs in the spring and not the fall because the majority of figs are ripe in the fall. And everyone's trying to understand this passage from different angles. But ultimately, this isn't about figs in horticulture. Jesus is revealing something really big and really important to us in this passage. This isn't just about him being hungry. And as we see Jesus acting in such a way that seems outside of our understanding of his character, we have to remind ourselves that he is without sin. He is God in the flesh. He's not acting in sin here. This is a very intentional act on the part of Jesus. We have to remember that Jesus, among many things, was also prophet. And this is an object lesson much like a prophet would have used in the Old Testament. Jesus is using this fruitless tree to communicate a truth about God. And as I heard one preacher say this week, what if Jesus primarily wasn't looking for figs? What if that's not what this was about? What if he was enacting an important lesson? And so as we, as Bible readers, look at this tree, all leaves, no fruit, it is a depiction of the sin of hypocrisy. All the outward appearance of fruit, but it was empty and it was barren. Nailed the presentation but not the substance. And as we, as even the casual student of the New Testament would know that Jesus has disdain for hypocrisy. We hear it in his confronting of the religious authority throughout the Gospels. Woe to you, you hypocrites, he calls to the religious authorities. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're white on the outside, but rotten on the inside. Great on presentation, nothing on substance. You're like a dirty mug. You're, you're clean on the outside, but dirty in the middle. So as Jesus sees this all leaves and no fruit, he curses the fruitless tree. Next we see, in verses 15 through 19, we see the cleansing of a fruitless temple. We see the cleansing of a fruitless temple. So for the second day in a row, Jesus is on the temple mount. He's having taken, he took stock the previous day, and so this day he comes ready for action. Mark tells us in verse 15 and 16 that Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers and, and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I wanted to, I was kicking around the idea, I was talking to my wife about this, I thought it'd be kind of cool if I had a table here today and like totally caught you off guard by just like going boom and knocking the table off the, and breaking the table and having everyone be shocked. And my wife said, Paul, you're pretty intense as it is. I don't think you need to like throw a table across the church to get people's attention. I'm like, all right, I won't do it. But wouldn't that have been cool? But I, I decided not to do it. <laughs> But, 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 but the point is we need to, I think sometimes when you read a Bible passage over and over and over and over and over again, if you've been raised in the church for any length of time, we, we just sort of sanitize and normalize something. But I don't think, we're not meant to sanitize. This is an incredibly intense and harrowing and probably terrifying and jaw-dropping scene. As Jesus walks onto Temple Mount, crowded with, with, with hordes and hordes of pilgrims and religious authorities and livestock and pilgrims and people everywhere, and he just went berserk. 
And as he's tearing the place apart, who knows how long it went on? Five minutes? 45 minutes? An hour and a half? Who knows how long it went on? Eventually he stops. The place is silent. Tables are on their sides. People's mouths are hanging open. All eyes are on Jesus. He's huffing and puffing, trying to catch his breath. And when he finally catches his breath, he speaks. It is written, he says. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Pay attention to or underline the phrase for all the nations. That's important for us to notice today. Jesus walked in the temple. He took stock the night before, and now he is enacting justice, and he is furious at what he has discovered at the temple. And I think in order for us to fully understand why Jesus is so angry, we need to scale back a little bit and wrap our mind around the heart of God for the nations. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, as God is making covenant with Abraham that through the people Israel, all the nations will be blessed. In his, in his covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 12 uh, verses 1 through 3, one of the things God says to Abraham in his promise is that he says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God was establishing a covenant people through whom there would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. This is the backdrop. Israel was always meant to be be God's blessing or God's means of blessing to the nations. And so that's the backdrop. So as Jesus walks on Temple Mount, what does he see that day? Well, one thing, the temple was massive. In the time of Jesus, the temple and the temple complex, it, it, it... occupied some 25% of the mass of the entire city of Jerusalem. The temple was huge. In fact, some people even said Jerusalem was not so much a city with a temple, but it was a temple with a small city around it. And the temple was divided into four areas. There was the court for the Gentiles, court for women, court for Jews, and then the Holy of Holies for God. And this court for the Gentiles was this massive court that wrapped around the whole complex. 500 by 350 yards. It was some 35 acres, a massive courtyard. And this was the place where Gentiles, non-Jews, could gather and could seek after the living God. And even to, to access the temple, you had to walk through the court of the Gentiles. It was of massive importance. It spoke to the heart of God for the nations. This was a place where all nations could gather to meet the living God. I mean, the very design of the temple factors in a place for the non-Jew to be included into the thing that God is doing. And yet in the time of Jesus, the very courtyard that he would have walked through and taken stock of the night before, that very courtyard had become a place to sell and to trade, a stockyard and a money-changing location of sorts. I mean, the Gentiles were to be given a space to come and pursue the living God, but that had all been crowded out by this money scheme that was being led by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And so as Jesus walks up there, he's looking at the heart of these Jews, and the Jews at the time thought that the Messiah was coming to get rid of the Gentiles, but here's Jesus on Temple Mount. He comes to make room for the Gentiles. 
And his Passover was a feast of obligation. Every Jew within a traveling distance would be in Jerusalem, upwards of a million. It was not, it was not conceivable for them to bring their own livestock. And so the Sanhedrin and, and Caiaphas had this, this reality. They had this 35-acre plot of land where they could have money-changing tables and they could have stockyards. And so when people traveled to Jerusalem for the Holy Holiday, they saw it as an opportunity to get rich, to capitalize on religion for personal gain. And so they had massively price-gouged animals, sheep and rams and goats for sale at ridiculous rates way higher than the average market price. But you couldn't use Roman currency on Temple Mount. You had to change it for temple currency, which was the shekel. And so massive uh, uh, markups, percentages like the worst credit card companies you can imagine, 45 APR money exchange. And so here's the religious folks of the day meant to represent God to the nations using this opportunity to get rich, to take advantage, and they've crowded out the Gentiles from even having a place to gather because they've turned it into a stockyard. Josephus mentioned that in 66 AD, as many as 255,000 lambs were slaughtered one year alone during Passover. So you get the idea of how big this operation was. Price gouging in the name of God. Extortion in the name of God. You see all these layers of perversion taking place. And worst of all, it was crowding out Gentiles in the name of financial gain. And it was appalling to Jesus. And he indicts the chief priests and the scribes. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus tore the place up. He tore the place up. He looks around. The temple is barren. This was a purposeful, controlled, righteous anger. We were talking a lot this week around the staff, around the hub, around the offices about how oftentimes you'll hear people say, God, take away my anger, God, take away my anger, to which God says, which, which other of my attributes do you not want to possess? The anger of God is righteous. Now we sin often in our anger and turn it into wrath. That's why it's so hard for us, I think, to read this text. To see Jesus throwing tables across the courtyard in anger seems antithetical to the Jesus we want to think about, the one who holds lambs and puts children on his lap. But this is just as much part of the character of Christ as those other things. And in verse 18, we read that it was the chief priests and the scribes who heard everything that he said, and then they sought to destroy him. When we see the phrase, chief priests and scribes, our, our mind should ping, because in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus had been foretelling his disciples what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. Chapter 8, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Chapter 10, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. The moment Jesus turned over those tables, he was signing his death warrant. And when you look at these chief priests and these scribes, the text tells us that they feared Jesus. Not a reverent fear. They feared how Jesus would upend the monopoly they had and the power they had. And so they sought to destroy him because Jesus had revealed that their religion was all leaves, no fruit, all presentation, zero substance. And for that, they decided he must die. We see the curse of a fruitless tree. We see the cleansing of a fruitless temple. And finally, as Jesus and his disciples come back to the fig tree the following day, 
finally, we see the call to fruitful discipleship. After the cursing of a fruitless fig tree, after the cleansing of a fruitless temple, we now see Jesus teaching his disciples, and we see the call to fruitful discipleship. The day before the tree was in full leaf, they heard Jesus curse it. Now here's Peter walking up to the tree, and it's totally dead. And he can't believe it. And he's like, Jesus, that tree you cursed, it's totally, it's 100% dead. How, how'd that happen? In one night. And then Jesus answers them, and he says something I wouldn't have thought he would have said. Jesus answers them in verse 22. And what he says? Have faith in God. I would have thought if I was Jesus and I was going to teach a lesson about all leaves, no fruit, I would have talked about hypocrisy. I would have pointed out the, the shallowness of the Pharisees. I would have warned against hypocrisy. But what Jesus does instead is he upholds true religion. Rather than indict the failures of the religious folks of the day, Jesus says, I'm not going to worry about indicting them any further. I've already showed you what I think about them. Here's what I'm going to do instead. You see what all leaf, no fruit looks like? Let me show you what fruitfulness looks like. I'm going to call you to be fruitful. Let me hold fruitfulness up for you. How does fruitfulness start? How does fruitfulness for God start? Well, have faith in God. That's where it starts. Have faith in God. This is all deliberate. Jesus had orchestrated all of these events. It wasn't a hangry outburst at a fig tree near Bethany. This was an orchestrated few days where Jesus was teaching very important truths to his disciples then and his disciples today. And as they're gathered around that dead, fruitless tree, Jesus speaks. I'm going to read again, verse 22 through verse 25. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father, who, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus is contrasting his teaching, contrasting the spirituality of the chief priests and scribes that was all leaves, no fruit, to the spirituality he desires for his disciples, which is to be fruitful. And so we're obviously meant to see this connection between the fig tree and the temple. Mark sandwiched the, the temple cleansing between these two discussions about the fig tree on purpose. It's an object lesson so that we see the fig tree is figurative of spiritual life in Jerusalem. And the Old Testament prophets, they spoke about Jerusalem being analogous to a tree or a vineyard or a plant over and over again. So as Jesus was cursing this fig tree initially, it's very likely his disciples made that connection between the fig tree and Israel as a whole. I read this week that the, this foundational metaphor for Israel's spiritual health vividly blooms in the prophetic language. The time had come for God's people to yield fruit that would bless the world. Several times the prophets describe God as inspecting Israel for early figs as a sign of spiritual fruitfulness. But as Jesus stands on Temple Mountain, stands at the face of that tree, he finds no first ripe fig that his soul desires. So as Jesus now speaks to his disciples, both them then and us today, he is very concerned about the fruitfulness about the fruitfulness in your spiritual life and in my spiritual life. He's wary, and Jesus is warning us 
of a spirituality with lots of showy leaves but no fruit. Jesus is wary and he's warning us about a spirituality that is all about presentation and not so much about substance. And so then what he does is he lays out in these few verses exactly how it is that his disciples can be fruitful. And the first basis for the fruitful spiritual life is faith in God. Not faith in our finances or our fortunes. Not faith in ourselves or others. The first basis for our fruitful spiritual life is faith in God. It's a call by Jesus. Jesus is calling his disciples, them then and us today, to an active, living, fruitful faith. And then he shares the kind of fruit he desires for his disciples to have. His instruction to them is the same as it is to us today. And so what does Jesus ask of us? Well, he asks us to be fruitful. And there's three ways we see it being played out in our text today. He calls us to be fruitful. He calls us to bear fruit. What kind of fruit is he calling us to bear? Well, he calls us to have a faith-filled, expectant prayer life. He calls us to model and live in forgiveness. And he challenges us to have a deep concern for the lost and the seeking. And I think we see that in our passage today. So, so we see him cursing the fig tree, cleansing the temple, destroying false, fake religion that's all leaves no fruit. And then he calls us to be fruitful as his disciples, but he doesn't just say be fruitful. He gives us a very clear picture of what the kind of fruit is he desires for us as his church to display. Faith-filled, expectant prayer, forgiveness, deep concern for the lost and seeking. Let's think about what this faith-filled, expectant prayer is to look like. Verse 22, 23, and 24 spell this out. Jesus wants his disciples to have the fruit of prayer. I read this week that prayer is the voice of faith. And we can contrast this sort of expectant prayer that Jesus wants his disciples to have, we can contrast that with what we see in the chief priests and the scribes. They have this self-assured religion that has choked God out. So there's a self-assured, independent piety at the center of their religion. But for those who are disciples of Jesus, there is a dependent and a dependency that's lived out in prayer. Prayer has been described as a declaration of dependence. The, 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 the scribes and the chief priests, they fear what Jesus can take away from them. But the disciples are to have faith in God, recognizing he is the giver of all good things. The picture here is of God's absolute readiness to respond to faithful prayer. This isn't, as we've talked about in previous weeks, this text can sometimes get distorted. Verse 23, about taking up a mountain and throwing it into the sea. This can sometimes be construed with treating faith as some talisman, some self-willed power that we conjure up within ourselves to wield like a, like a wizard with a wand zapping faith to move things that we want to move with our mind power like Star Wars or like Harry Potter. That's not the picture here. This is a faith-filled, expectant prayer that is rooted entirely in the power that God alone possesses. It's faith in Him. As we said several weeks ago, this is a faith rooted in the mountains. This is a faith that is not so much rooted in the mountains moving as it is so much rooted in the mountain mover himself. I'm mindful of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. psalmist writes, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The picture here is someone who is faithfully pursuing the Lord. 
And in so doing, delighting fully in the will of God, the heart of God, the desires of God. And as our hearts are yielded to the heart of God, his desires become our desires. And our prayers match his heart. And God moves through prayers that match his heart. I'm mindful of the language Jesus uses in John 15, the language of abiding. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus goes on to say, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then there's the famous passage, John 15, 5. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So this picture of faith-filled, expectant prayer, it flows from an abiding life, a surrendered life that is surrendered to Jesus. Abiding in him, remaining in him, connected to him, submissive to him, pursuing him. And it's that kind of abiding life where our heart yields to the heart of God. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. We can't conjure this up apart from God's Spirit at work in us. Ours is not a self-made religion, unlike what we see on Temple Mount. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that transforms the heart. God takes our stony, stubborn heart and he replaces it with a tender, responsive heart. That's a work of the Spirit. It's God's Spirit that renews our mind, that our heart and our mind may be aligned with God's. And we may pray pray these faith-filled, expectant prayers as the will of God unfolds in our midst. The second thing he calls his disciples to is the fruit of forgiveness. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. So Jesus wants his disciples to have the fruit of forgiveness. You have to contrast that with what we see in the hearts of the chief priests and the scribes. What's in their heart? When he tells us, it was a verse 18, they, they want to destroy Jesus. They have destruction in their heart. Jesus says the heart of the disciples is to be one of forgiveness. As men and women who have been forgiven much, it is our role to forgive much. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're not to have destruction in our heart, but forgiveness in our heart. That's an outflow of the gospel in our lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the third thing that I think is implicit in our text is this deep concern for the lost and for the seeking that we see modeled by Jesus. I see him, I see Jesus walking around temple court, the court of the Gentiles. I I think even verse 11, the night before, he goes there, and I see him walking around this 35-acre complex, knowing that this was a place that was designed to create space and opportunity for the lost and the seeking, for the nations to gather and encounter the living God. The very heartbeat of God for the nations. And as he walks through the the temple grounds, he sees stockyards and livestock and money changers and greedy religionists crowding out the space for the seeker to to be found. And it makes him so angry because we've seen the heart of God from the very beginning as a deep concern for the lost and the seeking. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, I came, that the, I came to seek and to save the lost. And in fact, when we read these two shocking depictions of Jesus today, the cursing and the cleansing, the reverse miracle of, of bringing death to a tree, and the, the cleansing of the temple by turning over tables, those are shocking to us. Those are connected to Jesus' anger at the way in which the cavalier way in which the religionists had totally abandoned their call to be a representative to God, of God to the nations. 
Both of these, these extreme, passionate behaviors of Jesus show Jesus' concern for the seeker and for the lost. God made room for the lost and the seeking, so should we. We are to have a deep concern for the lost and the seeking. Last Christmas, we did a sermon series for four or five weeks leading up to Christmas. We called it Giving the Greatest Gift. And in that, we talked about it just a simple way that God has, has wired us to think as in the scriptures, to think missionally. And we talked about how our job as Christians, we, we, we begged God in that sermon series to give us eyes to see the world the way he sees the world. That when we look at the world around us, we don't see stranger, but the stranger becomes neighbor. And as we, as we, as we see the stranger become neighbor, we ask God to move in our hearts in such a way that we would be able to, to step into the lives of the neighbor in our midst, to invite them into our home, to gather around our table, to where the stranger can become neighbor, but then the neighbor can become friend. In the, in the kitchen table, the resources God has blessed you with are, are rife with opportunity to create friendships with those who are seeking and who are lost. And your kitchen table is a tremendous resource, your friendship, your voice, your ear. And so we, we want to see the stranger as neighbor, the neighbor as friend, and through the context of relationship and friendship, our prayer is that God will use us as his church, as his representatives to the world, to lead the, the friend into the family of God. We believe this is the call of the church. This is what it means to live missionally. And it's interesting, and I know we've shared this in the past, we've been doing this discipleship survey. We've asked everybody at Heritage to fill out this survey because it helps us know how to, how to disciple ourselves, how to grow in Christ, areas where there are some deficiencies in the way in which we, we think about discipleship. And of the eight markers of discipleship, we had a, a highest marker and a lowest marker. The, the, the area where we as a church score the highest is the area of pure doctrine and understanding of the gospel. Across the board, every demographic, that's the number one rated area of discipleship for us as a church. We, we know the Word. We know the Gospel. And we, we love that. And we love the Word. That's awesome. That's a great quality for us to have. Interestingly enough, the lowest rated area across the board for us is missional living. Every one of us has scored that as one of the lowest areas in our life as a disciple. We know a lot about God. We know a lot about His Word. We know His heart for the lost. We know the hope of the Gospel. We know the power of the gospel, and yet we struggle to make room for the lost and the seeking in our lives. We struggle to create space and opportunity for the unbelieving to come and encounter the living God. We see the heart of Jesus here for his church. What does it mean? Like, we're not talking about leafiness that's fruitless. That's, Jesus already dealt with that. So, so what we're going to occupy our minds with today is what is it that Jesus, he's calling us to be fruitful. So what does that look like? For us, well, it's a prayerfulness, expectant, hopeful, submissive, prayerfulness. It's a forgiving heart that, that, that does not have destruction in the heart, but forgiveness in the heart, a desire to see men and women restored back to fellowship, back to relationship. And it's this deep burden for the lost and for the seeking. So as I close, church, let me ask you. And I'm asking myself the same question. Are you praying? What's your prayer life like? As you look at your prayer life, would you characterize it as faith-filled and expectant? Are you nurturing your faith through vibrant prayer? Let me ask you another question. Are you forgiving? Are you forgiving? Are you, are you pursuing reconciliation? Are you taking the high road 
And instead of holding a grudge and allowing a a desire for destruction to reside within your heart? Are you pursuing reconciliation, asking God by his spirit to give you the ability to forgive? And are you witnessing? Are you making room for the seeker and the lost in your life? Are you looking at the stranger and allowing God to change your heart to see them as neighbor and to see your neighbor as friend and to lead your friend to the family of God? May we be a church that is not so much about presentation but about substance. Let's not be a church that's all leaves, no fruit, but let's be a church that is fruitful for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so thankful for this word. So thankful for the privilege and the opportunity you've given us today to gather and sit under the authority of this word. And God, I'm mindful that there's so much happening in this passage that we could spend days, weeks, months, years trying to mine all the interesting peculiarities and uh, interesting little bits of information that are contained within this passage. But God, we ultimately, God, it's, it's pretty simple. And thank you that you've made it simple for us, God. We do not want to have a spirituality that is all leaves no fruit. And God, if that is the case in my life personally, our lives personally, if that is the case of our church, God, would you rebuke us? God, would you bring conviction that we would confess and repent? God, we want to be fruitful, and we can't conjure that up. That's a work of your Spirit in us. So we are asking, God, by the power of your Spirit, be alive in us, God. Draw out of us faith-filled, expectant prayers, God. By your Spirit, give us the, the capacity to offer forgiveness, to pursue reconciliation for your glory, God. Would you give us a deep burden and a deep concern for the lost and the seeking in our midst, God. May we create space and place and primacy upon those in our midst who do not know you, but God, you have put us in their lives as a means through which they might encounter you, the living God. God, by your spirit, would you make us fruitful for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.